Hello, and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. My guest today is Brian Dunning. Brian's an old friend of mine who I met back when we were both building FileMaker solutions for clients who we build on an hourly basis. Over the years, Brian has transitioned away from trading time for money to the most purely value-based model I've ever encountered. He now runs a donation-supported nonprofit called Skeptoid Media. As a former dev, I wanted to have Brian come on the show to hopefully inspire you to consider packaging up and selling your expertise in a novel way. Enjoy. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Just for context, could you give folks a little bit of uh, background on what you do now and sort of where you came from? And then we'll sort of drill into that in detail as we go through the episode. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a big arc because what I do now is so unrelated to where I came from. So where, where I've ended up is uh, I'm basically for what I do all day is being a podcaster. And in more detail, it's a, it's a podcast called Skeptoid. It's been going for 11 years. It comes out once a week. It's about 12 minutes long, very short format. Uh, and it's, uh, it's the main product of uh, my company, which is a nonprofit, which is called Skeptoid Media. And we also produce documentary films and related educational materials. And the idea is that all of this is provided for free to educators. So the whole company is completely supported by private grants and donations. Um, the bulk of which is um, micropayments supporting the podcast, uh, but it all goes to a you know, sort of a much larger and much broader source than just one podcast. That just happens to be where I spend most of my time. But where I came from and how, how this began is this began as a hobby uh, back in the mid 2000s um, for what I was doing for a living, which was being a FileMaker consultant. And I think that's where you and I first met probably I don't even want to say 20 something years ago. Um, right. I think I was doing that for since the mid nineties. So probably, yeah, probably over 20 years. Um, I was uh, just, I, 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 sometimes I worked individually as a consultant. Sometimes I worked for a consulting firm, just kind of for an hourly rate. And I was always looking for, you know, what's uh, what's something that I can sell that's, you know, going to bring in money without me having to physically work with my own two hands and sell hours of my life away. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's basically the story. That's wild. And, you know, I, I remember back then when I first heard about Skeptoid and I was like, it's hard to, I don't think I've ever told you this, but it, it's like, hard what? to, I, yeah, it was such a like needle off the record type of like, wait a minute, what? I mean, podcasting, I knew about it at the time. I don't, it wasn't really new at that point. I don't think it's hard to remember the timeline, but I remember thinking like this, it was just really hard for, for me to process two such different things. I just sort of knew you in a particular way. You had this particular identity and then there was this whole other side to what you were doing. And I, th I think now, was there a sort of middle ground there in your transition that we were doing shrink wrap products or am I? Yeah, I, I, with, with varying success, I was trying to get out of the hourly consulting all the time. And I had some developer tools that uh, were sold off of a website. And I actually still have some of those because they do still bring in some money. And so there, there's no reason to turn them off, but it's not something that takes up any of my time. Um, I had been, um, I, I did have one little detour during my consulting days, which was in the Silicon Valley, the dot-com boom. Um, I was a co-founder of a company that had a venture capital investment and um, 
so I had to move to Silicon Valley and did that whole thing. And that's a whole other conversation for another time because that's a, that's a wild story in itself. Mm -hmm. But as part of that company, we needed to distribute a piece of software to uh, all of the customers who use this, who use this service. And that was something that I actually built as a FileMaker runtime. And it was, it had, uh, I think a quarter of a million users worldwide. So I think arguably it was probably the most successful single FileMaker runtime software ever. Um, I would I would love to know if anyone has stats to see if that's true or not. But based on the success of that, after the whole dot com bust and boom, I I then found that all kinds of people were coming to me saying, "Hey, you you built this. Can you help me build this?" So it'd be dentists, doctors, lawyers, whoever who had something they had made in FileMaker and they wanted to sell it to other people in their business. So they were looking to hire me as a consultant to help them with that. So I did that for a few years. I had a I had a training course called To Market, which was pretty successful for a few years. Um, and uh, the the eventually the um, the consulting uh, just ended up being a more steady flow of income. And because most of these people who had these software ideas, they were bad ideas, quite frankly, and they weren't going to work. And and few of them did. <clears throat> so what I ended up doing really was taking people's consulting money to help them with something that I knew was not going to be successful for them. And that's not very fulfilling to do personally or professionally. Right. So I kind of ended up defaulting back to the hourly consulting again, you know, which is fine. You make money and, but you just kind of get old working with the sweat of your two hands. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate to be able to transition into the new nonprofit educational business, which is, you know, kind of, as you point out, it's quite a detour, but uh, it's a very fulfilling professionally. That's fascinating. And in, in you're preaching to the choir, of course. So the, the thing that I want to impress upon people, the dear listener, is that I think, I think in spite of the fact that the podcast is a different subject area, it's not necessarily, it, it's still something that people could do. So the, the kind of picture I'd like to paint today uh, is is a path from toiling with your two hands, like you pointed out, from a in a technical profession and moving into just a different kind of business model, even if it's not full time. Uh, it could be that you're just sort of diversifying your income streams or whatever it is. And, and it could be that you pick an interest that's unrelated to your technical expertise like like Brian here did or it could be something that you that is technical you know maybe you're really into I don't know profiling JavaScript frameworks or you're really into node or iOS or whatever it is you you know and you could perhaps package up that expertise in a different way and uh, and and what I hope we can get to is how does a business like that work how do you make a living doing a sort of nonprofit educational kind of endeavor. You, how do you make a living as a podcaster is, of right. course, <laughs> the perennial question that people have been asking since about 2004. Um, so we, so I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail about how that transition. Like I said, when it started, I started my first episode was October 2006. At that point, it was just a hobby. And I figured I was going to do five or 10 episodes and get it out of my system and be done with it. But for whatever reason, 
um, the show that I was doing, and it's it's basically a science show. It's it's a show about the science behind urban legends uh, is the the best elevator pitch for it. So if there's something you've heard, some conspiracy theory, urban legend, alternative medicine scheme, paranormal story, UFO story, anything like this you might have heard of, there's been yeah chemtrails. Uh, there's been an episode on that, and it's exploring the true science behind what's going on or not going on. Or, and often it's not. It ends up being the sociology behind why people think this is a thing when it's not. But anyway, for some reason, I was fortunate enough that my show spoke to people. People responded. People really enjoyed it. Um, and they started sending me feedback and episode ideas. And I was still consulting full time. So I never asked for donations or anything like that. In fact, sometimes people would ask me if they could donate. And I said, no, don't worry about it. It's you know, it's more hassle than it's worth. It's something I'm doing for fun. And what ended up happening over the course of about the next two years is I started finding out that teachers were using this substantially in, in classes. And I think the reason has to do with what's different between my podcast and most other podcasts, which is that it's short format, single format. It's 100% content. There's no, hey, here's what I've been up to last week. Here's, you know, what my cat looks like. Uh, it's pure content and it's very short. So when you search on the website for, you know, 9-11 truther or whatever, you will find exactly that episode and that episode contains nothing but that subject. So it's something that is useful for teachers who are doing a particular unit, whether that's a unit on critical thinking or some particular science. So I decided, gee, maybe I better start focusing on this more often. And gradually it, it kind of became more formalized. The website began offering more formalized resources, um, started making some videos. Um, there was a documentary film back in 2008 called Here Be Dragons, which is about kind of a general introduction to critical analysis of pop phenomena. Boy, that's a horrible pitch, isn't it? That's a <laughs> Um, and that was very successful in classrooms. So in um, I started taking donations in 2010. Um, it had taken up so much of my time that I started doing it full time, even though there wasn't enough money coming in to make a living yet. So I was still kind of cruising on my savings and everything. Uh, 2012, it became a nonprofit because it was clear that uh, donation supported for educational purposes was the was the dominant reason that people were supporting the show. And um, it's just gone from there. It, it, it makes a living now. And every time there's enough uh, beyond uh, the minimum paycheck, uh, then it goes toward a project which uh, gets, gets produced. There's two video series now. There's two more films in production. We just completed one film this year. Um, it's, it's just a wild ride. And I enjoy every second of it. And not once am I ever <laughs> doing getting an hour older, selling an hour of my time, which is just, I, I'm ecstatic every day when I think of it. I just have so much fun and enjoy what I do so much. Mm, yeah. I, I, I know the feeling it's, it's so different when you, I don't know, it's kind of hard to describe. I mean, you're doing a good job painting the picture. That's, that's, that's wonderful, right. but it's a very different feeling when you're working. So like when I, when I used to bill by the hour, I can remember thinking like at the end of a, the end of a coding session, like four, you know, four hours long, like, ah, oh, I just made 800 bucks or, or something like that. It was, it was more of a, it was such a different mentality. It was so much more mercenary. And I just felt like I felt very safe when I was on the clock. 
is the only way to say it. It, it felt like it felt like okay, things are good. I'm making money right now. Mm-hmm. And when I when I it's it's funny when you switch over to even if you're still doing software projects, when you switch over to fixed fee projects, however you calculate the price, whether it's value based or some other way, uh, the feeling is completely different because every every hour you spend coding, you're losing money. So you want to you want to get it done as quickly as possible in a way that is you know, that still has high quality because you're on the hook if there are bugs and stuff. So it's not like you can just, you know, sort of do a bad job and get it done quickly. You have to do a good job and get things done. And you want to, you're motivated to get things done very quickly. And I found that it was psychologically, it was a surprise, uh, but I think it's, and it, and it's um, a little bit scary, but I think it should be because that is, that's the feeling that the customer has. And, uh, I guess we don't we don't really need to get in, into that too much for this conversation. But what I'm getting at is uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit more about the difference in psychology and the shift that if you can remember, because it's been a while now, but if you can remember the shift, uh, the struggles that you might have had, you know, like maybe questioning like, wow, is this ever going to make money? Things like that. You know, I, I remember that some of the some of the worst professional memories actually come from that. Um I think one of the one of the lowest points in my software career was right after the whole Silicon Valley bust boom. Unfortunately, our, our company came into that a little bit late. We came in just as the VCs were starting to shut companies down. So even though our company was successful and profitable before we took an investment, after we took the investment, it almost immediately became unprofitable and they started shutting the company down. And one of the early things that happened was they put these ridiculous caps on our salaries so that we couldn't even really exist in Silicon Valley anymore. And so, you know, there's headlines and articles, hey, multi-million dollar investment in the company. Well, that's what it looks like to the public. But uh, for us, it was actually a huge step backward. So here I am, they eventually did shut the company completely down the end of this two year slide from being awesome and profitable to being a Silicon Valley company and being continually shut down. Um, I was pretty much destitute when when I finally left that and stepped away. Um, we had like no savings left. And so I'm desperately trying to sort of restart this consulting business that had been on hiatus for two years. And so I'm taking any job I can get. I'm doing all kinds of emailing and everything. I was fortunate in that I had some name recognition from having done the, the um, I was a technical advisor on FileMaker Advisor Magazine, and that always gave me great name recognition. And uh, that was very fortunate. That was probably the one thing that allowed me to build up a new consulting business in just a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when you're, you're, you had all of these customers were very price conscious. They wanted low hourly rates. Um, I was desperate for cash. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest right now. There are times when I padded my billing a little bit because I'm sitting there and I just didn't know what else to do to make ends meet. And f- knowing that I did that, that's a that's a horrible, horrible thing. I never seriously, yeah, you know, I'd I'd, I'd mark off uh, an hour when it was only thirty five minutes, or you know, yeah, round up, yeah. Like, you know, you, you bill seven hours for five and a half hours worth of work once in a while, I'd always feel horrible. I'd feel guilty. I'd vow that I'd make it up to them again next week by underbilling. And, you know, you just never get that opportunity. So those are very dark times psychologically. Um, 
you're working your butt off, you're trying as hard as you can, and you still can't really give the client any good service. It was, um, it was very hard to be that person in that position. Um, I want, I just want to add a comment to people who are thinking right now that they don't build, pad their hours. Guess what? You do pad your hours. You want to know why? Because you're not working as efficiently as you could be. Because if you are billing by the hour, if you're selling your time, you have no financial incentive to create code libraries or toolkits that will allow you to work faster. There's just no reason to do it. So you don't. So you could actually be delivering whatever you're working on on an hourly basis now much more quickly and therefore more cheaply, but you're not doing it. Because why would you? It doesn't make sense. And I recognize that it's not the exact same thing. I'm sort of stretching it a little, but that's, that is the thing about hourly billing that drives me insane, especially as a software developer, me or you, dear listener, that, that we love efficiency. We almost crave it. It's, it's like core to our personalities in most cases. And yet we don't apply it to our own work because that would penalize us financially. So anyway, sorry for the aside, but I, I just, no, that's, to, that's, uh, that's very well stated. I mean, I, it, that very aptly describes uh, what, what I was going through. Yeah, you could have just bought a slower computer and felt fine about it. Said, oh, <laughs> sorry, my computer's really slow. <laughs> like, why would you ever upgrade to a faster computer? It doesn't make sense. Well, or, or, or you know, there's also kind of like dilemmas. It's like, okay, I'm, for this client, I've got to set this script running and it's going to take three hours to run. Do I bill for those three hours or, mm-hmm. or not? Yeah, it happens all the time. Well, this hour was spent kind of educating myself about something on their behalf, but it's something I feel like I should have known. So I guess I'll, I won't charge them for that, or maybe I should, or, or I have this starter file that I spent a hundred hours building. Should I build them for the hundred hours for the starter file? That doesn't seem fair. Like the whole thing is the the problem is that it's just as it's a nonsensical way to bill for, for work. So of course you end up with all these dilemmas. All of that. Cool. Well, so do you, I'm kind of curious from an advice standpoint. So people are listening that are software developers, they, they, and, and others, but mostly people that build by the hour, uh, lots of software developers. And I, I do think in general, people should be looking for other ways to diversify their income. Uh, but I suppose it's true. It must be true that it's not for everyone. So like, you know, this particular path we're talking about, Let's just sum it up as podcasting. I mean, I know, I know, I don't want to exaggerate here. I know at least one, I know at least three people, not counting you, Brian, who are making four and five figures per month by selling sponsorships on their shows. And these are not hugely popular shows. I mean, we're talking about a couple thousand downloads per show in some cases. I know one person who has a very popular show is making, you know, 20, 30, $40,000 a month. But well, hey, I need to I need to get on board with whatever whatever advertising company that is. If they're making five figures with a couple thousand downloads, yeah, I need to get on that train. Well, I mean, that's you know, it'd be a very different thing for you though because of the the model that you have, I think. So the the question though, I, I suppose, is over the years, have you found that there are certain people for whom like podcasting just not a good fit, or certain topics that just aren't a good fit, or kind of asking for your advice about about how somebody could could ask themselves, you know, might I be good at this? What should I focus on? How should I format the shows? It doesn't need to be, I'm like, I'm not trying to have like a, here's how you podcast kind of conversation, but just at a high level, those sorts of things. Well, I, I, I think that uh, most of those questions aren't 
relevant to the one question, which is, is your show going to be successful and what makes it successful? And that's something that there's just no answer to. I had a, I had a, um, my, my educational background is in computer science and then writing for film and television. And I had a writing teacher once who told me this great piece of advice, which I've always remembered, is that with, with Dr. Frankenstein, I can teach you how to connect the knee bone to the leg bone, to the head bone. I can teach you how to screw the brain into the, to the skull. But the one thing I can't teach is the lightning that makes it all come to life. Mm. So you can do everything right for building a podcast and your show still might suck. It still just might not have that spark that's going to make people respond to it. I can't tell you what that spark is. I, I, I feel that I've been fortunate that my show seems to have that spark and I wouldn't be here if it didn't. If I bought the right microphone and had the right show schedule and the right show format and the right guests and, and did all of that stuff correctly, um, I still wouldn't be here if there wasn't just that some special something, whatever it is, that uh, makes Skeptoid successful. Um, I'm, I, I do guest appearances on other podcasts just like this um, all the time. And so many of these shows are, are badly done. The, the, the interviewer is terrible at interviewing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's like uh, 10% of these podcasts are really worth listening to in, in my somewhat informed opinion. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I can give a few things that I, that I have done that I think are important. And number one is consistency. Your show has to be consistent in every metric. It has to be a consistent length. It has to be a consistent format. It has to have consistent audio quality. If it's got music or sound effects or backgrounds, those have to be consistently inserted. Um, if you've got advertising, that has to be at a consistent spot in the show. Um, and most importantly is the show has to come out on a consistent schedule. Um, it's got to be weekly and it's got to be at the exact same time on the exact same day every week. Those, I think, are very important. Um, because if you're not consistent in your release schedule, you're going to lose listeners faster than you can catch them. Um, you know, and um, it's it's a full time job for me. Uh, I probably spend 60 percent of my time working on the podcast and the other 40 percent of the time uh, just running the nonprofit. And there's a billion things you have to do to, to run a business. There is a board of directors, which I'm not on. And, you know, they have they do their thing. And I'm the only I'm the only uh, full time salaried employee though. So most of the grunt work lands on my shoulders. Um, so the time that I do have to work on the podcast, you know, that's, that's like my recreation time. That's, that's the fun <laughs> yeah, time. Right. I get to, I, I basically paid to screw around on the internet, <laughs> fun stuff. Yes. Um, and I, and I get to be paid to be a writer, which is what I always wanted to do. Yep. So, wow, that's great. All right, cool. So that's, that's probably a good place to leave it. Did we leave anything out? Is there anything else that I forgot to ask. Um, well, you know, I, I, I would just say that looking back at all of these, you know, these kind of various careers that I've had over this 20, 25 year period we're, we're talking about, the, 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 the reason that I'm happiest now is, is twofold. Number one is because it's something that I, I'm doing stuff that's fun for me that I would do anyway as a hobby. But number two, and I think this is probably the most significant is that my success or failure depends on donations and people's decision to make a donation. That's purely voluntary by them. And they only do it if they genuinely feel they're getting value and they genuinely appreciate what I do. So my success or failure depends on whether I'm making people happy. 
by their estimation of it, not by my estimation of it. And the fact that that's worked for me is just so fulfilling and makes me so happy that you just, I can't even describe it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, that's the opposite of hourly billing, <laughs> of course. Right. It, it literally is because the, because people are, are, I mean, you are, are operating in the purest value environment of anyone I've ever talked to because I've never talked to someone who survived on donations before. So it is exactly happiness is, is totally subjective. Happiness is the value. You could call it, you know, mental well-being or whatever you want to call it, but basically it's happiness. I'm happier now than I was before. And that could be from a six month software project, or it could be from listening to a 17 minute episode of Skeptoid or whatever you said, 12 minutes. Uh, so when you, when you okay, <laughs> so uh, the opposite of, of that is when you just believe that you're worth a hundred dollars an hour and they can tell you to rake their lawn, wash their car or build software. That's up to them. But my time's worth a hundred dollars an hour. My time's worth $200 an hour. And the sense that value is something that's intrinsic to an object in an, in an objective way is just flat wrong. It's an illusion. Value is always in the mind of the buyer or the recipient, the other person, you know, if you're trading or trading thing for thing or trading money for thing or money for service, the value is always subjective and it's always on the buyer side. And, and I just love how pure of an example of this it is. And, and oh, by the way, isn't it, gratifying emotionally to have that kind of feedback. I, I just, it's amazing. It is, it is, it is the biggest contributor to my happiness level. That's, that's for sure. Well, other than my family, of course, of course. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's fabulous. Well, thanks so much, Brian. Where can people, where's the best place for people to find out more about you and Skeptoid? Skeptoid.com is the website for the podcast. And that has links to out to all of the other projects. The, the company has a website, skeptoid.org, but that's mostly just a business website for the nonprofit for you know tax purposes to access all of those nonprofit forms and all that stuff. But skeptoid.com, uh, there's transcripts for all of the episodes going back 11 years are all on the website, which is great for Google placement, by the way. <laughs> 600 pages, all of original high quality content. That's awesome. That's your SEO tip for the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great show. It's one of my favorite podcasts. So, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You definitely changed the way I think about about this sort of pop culture, you know, oogie boogie, whatever you want to call it. You hear that, people? If he says it changed his way of thinking, just think what it'll do for you. I know. I'm very closed minded. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you. The next time someone asks you for your hourly rate, this is what I'd like you to say. I don't have one. To learn what to say next, visit valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free email course. Again, that website is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space. Or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. 
To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.